on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, four major rural groups lobby for millions of dollars towards regional roads. But it's got to such a critical point that the National Farmers Federation, the Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association, the Australian uh, Local Government Association and Grain Growers have come together to really hammer home what's needed in terms of funding right now in the lead up to the May budget. And on Valentine's Day, the flower growers who now own a florist shop in northwest Tasmania. We were delivering one day and... The owner mentioned that she needed to move on and uh, did we know somebody who might be interested to take it on? And it wasn't going to be us, but it's ended up being us. Yeah, what a magic day for Valentine's Day and the flowers. And a couple of flower stories coming up to put a smile on your face. Later in the program, also the push from our prominent rural groups to get more than $5 billion spent on rural and regional roads which have been damaged by floods across the country, including here in Tasmania. Got lots of roads that need some work. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday, where we also look at a major fire in a plantation in Tasmania's northwest. That story coming up in just a moment. It's a big concern with some hot weather on the way later in the week. And we'll check in with the Bureau to find out more details at the halfway point of the program. Plus the wood chopping champ who's in training to defend her national title next month. That story coming up. And, of course, your thoughts on any subject via the text line 0438 922 936 is that number. First up, more than 50,000 trees have been damaged in a plantation bushfire in Tasmania's northwest, believed to have been deliberately lit. General Manager of Enterprise Performance at Forico, Jim Wilson, says fire services were first called to the outbreak in the plantation at Beulah on the weekend before a second outbreak late yesterday. We had a suspected arson event there on Saturday, which we which we quickly extinguished with the assistance of TAS Fire Service and followed up with routine blacking out and, and checking on both Sunday and Monday, confirming that, in fact, the fire was out up until 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon. And strangely enough, at 3.30, there was a smoke event there detected again. Since 3.30 yesterday afternoon, we've been... Uh, hard at it with TAS Fire Service, uh, working alongside them, uh, trying to contain what's now a a fairly significant fire event uh, based on a secondary ignition, we think. What are the conditions like out there at the moment? Uh, Tony, well, I was out there last night and, you know, conditions are fairly warm. Uh, We've got a lot of cured grass on site, but we're a bit lucky in that there's not a lot of wind and uh, conditions overnight were fairly damp. So that's given our firefighters this morning a chance to get back on top of yesterday's events. And uh, I note that TAS Fire Service this morning were in the media uh, advising that they think they'll have the fire contained and, and uh, hopefully extinguished during the course of the day today. How many units are fighting the blaze at the moment? Forico's got three units there, so six people across three units, and TAS Fire Service have got the same, I understand, and then all of those ground crews are supported by uh, four helicopters and two bulldozers and an excavator, I believe. So... There's certainly a good response to this fire and and it's something that I should take the opportunity to commend TAS Fire Service uh, for their response, both at this fire and and others. You know, we're really seeing times where our fire agencies are throwing lots of resources at these fires quickly to uh, 
avoid them getting too big. Now, it's one of your plantations. Are there any properties nearby that are threatened? No, I don't think so, Tony. We're fairly fortunate there. We've got a a pretty significant property called Armistead uh, based at Kimberley. Uh, The fire, as I understand it, is contained within that property. There are certainly public uh, roads that intersect that property, but uh, in terms of impacts to neighbours, surrounding houses, farms, etc., uh, there are there are none within the scope of the fire at this time. So it really is sort of an internal Forico matter. I guess the only exception being where it intersects with public roads, which could be potential for a smoke issue. And I know it's early days and uh, you haven't been able to assess all the damage yet, but what could it mean for the, the uh, plantation itself with regard to the trees that are damaged? Yeah, I mean, look, fire is a pretty significant issue for a forest manager. In a hardwood context, charcoal is a big issue in the production of paper. So it can be significantly, uh, well, in fact, it doesn't just downgrade the the stand of trees, it can destroy it. So uh, there's a significant commercial outcome there. There's also some pine plantation impacted here as well, which... Uh, is less significant because those logs will ultimately end up in a in a sawmill to make stick framing for houses. So it does sort of uh, underline some timing with respect to harvesting while to avoid the tree drying out. But there's certainly products that can be salvaged from that. So you're right, it is early days. We focus on getting the fire out just at the moment rather than the extent of the damage. But um, but there will be some commercial impact here that uh, we need to acknowledge. How many hectares at this stage have been affected? And do you know the average number of trees to the hectare? Uh, yes, I, I do. Uh, so we, we, we mapped the fire this morning at about 7am uh, at 54 hectares. So that's that's a fairly sizeable fire from our perspective, from a commercial commercial lens. Uh and there's about a thousand trees per hectare thereabouts, so you know they're fairly big numbers. And what can you do if you say there's a situation with arson? What can you do to protect plantations, which are obviously uh, far away from you know people being there? Yeah, so I guess uh, you know Forico's position here is to support the our fire agencies. So there's three fire agencies in Tasmania. Forico are a fairly significant landowner, so we have our own. Uh, internal resources as well. We have a trained workforce in fire response. Uh, we've got a fairly significant lineup of fire appliances ourselves and a memorandum of understanding with the Tasmania Fire Service. So when there's an event like this, uh, it's generally called in by a member of the public. Uh, we're able to respond with staff that are on our fire roster to work alongside TAS Fire Service. So they're kind of the reactive strategies that we have and then in a more proactive sense we also engage with um, fire breaks across our estate. We undertake planned burning mainly in our natural forest systems and so we try and position ourselves to avoid fire um, but when we do eventually get it then we're well positioned to respond. And obviously you rely on the community uh, seeing things out there. Well, you know, Forico very much rely on the community and, you know, we, we note that TAS Fire Service as the primary fire agency here are effectively all volunteers, those that are on the ground. Um, so, you know, we, we take our head off to the contribution that they make and last night, as a case in point, there were people on that fire ground until midnight and they were turned up again at 7am this morning. So, you know, we, we very much uh, working with those volunteers, with our own staff and contractors, and 
doing the best that we can. That's Jim Wilson from Forica on the fire burning in one of the company's plantation forests at Beulah in Tasmania's northwest, believed to have been deliberately lit twice and causing damage to over 50,000 trees. The ABC has contacted the TAS Fire Service for a comment. Well, to Rhodes now, and four of the country's most influential lobby groups have teamed up to put pressure on the federal government to inject $5.5 billion into improving the nation's road net network over the next four years. It's a big job, largely led by local councils who have tens of thousands of kilometres of roads they need to repair after widespread flood events and wild weather, including here in Tasmania. Zach Whale is the General Manager of Policy and Advocacy at Grain Growers. He explained to Amelia Berners-Sconey why they've formed the Alliance. So road funding has been on the agenda for a while and lots of people have been talking a lot about the state of the roads right across Australia, but it's got to such a critical point that the National Farmers Federation, the Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association, the Australian uh, Local Government Association and Grain Growers have come together to really hammer home uh, what's needed in terms of uh, funding right now uh, in the lead up to the May budget so that we can actually get some of these issues addressed uh, because the the times now, it's a huge problem, Um, it's a big price tag, but it's a big payoff Uh, for all regional road users if we can get this right. It probably feels like a lifetime for those that have been living it, but um, we have seen an extraordinary number of flood events this year and other natural disasters. Can you take us through it and and the impacts that you've been hearing back from your members? Yeah, sure. So since January 22, there's been 23 flood events with, you know, hundreds of declarations across most local government areas. And the uh, especially wet couple of years on the east coast have just meant that the road service has just broken up and there has not been um, the ability to actually fix that uh, quickly enough uh, so that road users can can actually have a, a safe uh, and productive road surface to get critical inputs into regional communities, uh, to get exports uh, or, or produce from farm to destination. And as I said, also um, to actually ensure that our roads are safe. It's a monumentous task. And it's something that anyone who has driven in in rural Australia over the last few years would understand. So, you know, it's a productivity issue, it's a safety issue, and ultimately it comes down to getting the right amount of funding back into local governments so that they can get those roads repaired. And in addition, we're seeing more and more need for uh, not just um, standard repair, so you get a pothole, you fix a pothole, but how do we actually better repair these roads and rebuild roads to a point where they can actually withstand uh, greater climate issues into the future. So we're going to get you know, more and more adverse weather conditions and it's not enough to just repair the roads to the same spec. We have to actually think about what it's going to take um, to get the roads repaired so that they can handle um, these conditions into the future. And that is not a cheap task. No. So take us through what you're calling on ahead of the May budget. Yeah, so in the, in the May budget, we're asking for a one-off injection of a billion dollars over four years directed specifically um, at, at councils impacted by floods and other natural disasters to ensure that they can rebuild to a higher standard. Uh, we're also calling for $800 million over four years for the Roads to Recovery Program, uh, $300 million a year over four years to address first and last mile freight productivity issues. That's a critical one. We hear so much about first and last mile. Often the middle part of the network Um, like imagine your your big trunk roads and your your national highways, often they can handle um, high productivity. But the first mile, so from the mailbox 
um, to your first point of receival or your local market, um, or the last bit, once you actually get off that big arterial road um, to where the, where the goods are going, that's the critical bit that actually needs um, some work. And finally, targeted funding through the Roads of Strategic Importance Program to improve long-term climate resilience of freight networks in general, in addition to um, that targeted funding I mentioned earlier about um, you know, targeted funding for local governments. So it's, it's $5.5 billion. Um, and look, in terms of general budgetary funding, it doesn't seem like much, but gee, that would go some way um, to really help um, fix these, these rural-focused issues um, to make sure that the safety is improved on our rural roads and also we get that productivity kick. Can you take us through, Australia's got a $13 billion grain industry, but what have you been hearing in the past few months that's been detracting for that? Obviously, the floods itself didn't come at a, a good time for harvest, but then you have these uh, added costs, added uh, issues on top when it comes to roads and the like. Look, absolutely. So specifically for the grains industry, um, the aim of the game is to actually get that produce as quickly as possible from farm uh, to a point of destination. And what we saw, and in particular uh, in parts of New South Wales and Victoria, what we saw due to the flooding, there were so many roads that were impacted that the distance uh, farmers had to travel or, or transporters in general had to travel uh, increased because people were diverted. Uh, and look, that's a reality. We understand that that has to happen from time to time, but it added considerable time and expense um, at, a, at what is a really, really busy time um, for, for the grains industry. So under normal circumstances, um, you'd be able to get tracks, uh, trucks rather uh, as close to you know the headers as possible or the chaser bins as possible and then easily, seamlessly get that grain um, back into storage or, or, or to market. In a year like this, you know, what we saw was the distances tractors would have to uh, cart grain to, to the point where trucks could access was, was much longer than usual just due to trucks not being able to get into the paddock. And then also, once the trucks actually left the farm, having to go all sorts of um, routes to get to their uh, receival point. And then even um, the big bulk handlers having issues um, with how do you actually get that grain to port. Uh, because we've had uh, a couple of abnormally large harvests back-to-back, this just added complexity because the supply chain was already full, uh, the shipping stem was full, um, there was a lot of grain already in the system, so it just made that logistical task tougher. But improving um, this this local road bit, improving the first mile component long-term, you know, will actually bring down um, the transport costs for our industry. Uh, we often think in terms of getting grain off a farm and to market, but it's actually also about getting critical inputs in. Um, freight in regional Australia very much goes two ways, whether it be fuel, fertiliser, you know, or other critical inputs. So, you know, that, that freight network needs to work uh, both ways. Um, and if we can do that, that actually brings down costs, um, which, is, which is going to help the, the community on the whole. That's Zach Whale from Grain Growers speaking there to Amelia Bernasconi about the push for $5.5 billion to upgrade rural roads right across the country. Now, do you have a rural road you hate because it's so bad and really needs upgrading? Let us know, 0438 922 936, 0438 922 936. Uh, Roger on the text line says, people... People die during bushfires. Arsonists should be charged with attempted murder. Thank you for that, Roger. 0438 922 Now, coming up, uh, research into oat rust and champion, the champion Tasmanian woodchopper. In recent years, Tasmania has milked a record high 960 million litres of cow juice. That's a whopping 10.8% of the national milk market. So what's all the fuss? Let's find out. This week, Hobart will be the centre of attention for the Australian Dairy Conference. 
created by a group of innovative farmers as a forum to push boundaries and dairy thinking. I'm Meg Powell and I'll be there speaking with the movers and shakers this Thursday from noon on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. The University of Sydney has won a grant for over $900,000 to find a way to reduce the impact of damaging crown rust, a fungal pathogen affecting Australian oat production. Oats, of course, used for grazing to make hay and is milled for both human and livestock consumption. But the industry has been plagued by recurring epidemics and rust is considered the most important disease limiting oat production. World-renowned crop disease expert Professor Robert Park from Sydney University will lead the research and he talks to our reporter. This new project is going to focus on oat, uh, oat crops and they are infected by a different kind of rust uh, that we call crown rust. Um, and it's an even bigger problem, believe it or not, than what stripe rust is in wheat uh, because we've pretty much run out of um, the, um, the easiest sources of resistance we can use. Right. Do we have a dollar figure on how much it's costing the grain sector? Uh, no, we don't uh, for oat. Unfortunately, oat has been a little bit of a uh, the poor cousin of wheat because <laughs> it's a smaller crop. But, um, I mean, in, in wheat, certainly we know um, the losses are in the orders of tens of millions of dollars and, um, and growers, of course, spend a lot of money on fungicides. Um, well, we also know in wheat that um, using genetic resistance saves the industry around a billion dollars a year. So that's for wheat. Okay, so definitely um, plenty of space for this research to, um, yeah, to look at, I imagine, genetics and, and resistant varieties. What will be the focus, thanks to this uh, nearly million-dollar grant? Yeah, well, look, the, as I said, um, the problem with oat, uh, rust in oats, really has been that it's um, a big problem. Um, I guess you could say a big problem in a small crop, so it's not as well-funded as the other crops. Um, we've tried to use genetics in the past, but we've not really had a concerted, coordinated effort, particularly um, coordinated across the different oat crops. So now I'm talking about grazing oat and milling and hay oat. Um, so, you know, you can address the problem in one of these um, sectors, but unless you address it across both, you're really not going to, to um, make much progress. So our approach in this new project is to is to work with uh, grazing oat breeders and also with hay and milling oat breeders to try and bring in some new genetics um, of what we think are probably going to be durable sources of crown rust into both of those crop types. Okay, I understand you're working with German researchers in this space as well. Are they already sort of leading the charge over there or...? Yeah, look, the um, the German group, um, and indeed we are, we're, we're partnering with Murdoch University in Western Australia as well on this. So the Murdoch group and the, the German group are among the world leaders in the new area of rust, uh, sorry, of oat genomics. So they're doing a lot of um, genome sequencing in oat. Um, so that's why we've partnered with them. I mean, this is a, a really rapidly developing area in all, pretty much in all plant science for that matter. But in oats, it's, it's had huge impact in the last year. So we now have for the very first time a reference genome assembly for the oat genome. Um, and like wheat, it's a huge genome. So these guys are doing some amazing research in sequencing these massive genomes and basically telling us what genes are there. So it allows us to drill right down to the genome uh, with much, uh, and, and have much more precision in the work that we're doing on the rust resistance. You're probably not going to like my next question, Professor, but how long until this might be in the consumer's hands? <laughs> Well, look, that sort of depends on um, 
the assessment phase, but we've already progressed this. So we've had GRDC, Grange Research and Development Corporation, funding for this work um, over the past 10 years, and we managed to get to progress that to a certain point. So we actually have made some progress, um, and we believe now we're in a really strong position, particularly with the, the recent developments in genome sequencing, to deliver this quite quickly. So I'd be disappointed if we don't start seeing this in farmers' fields in the next five years. Yeah, that's Professor Robert Park from University of Sydney looking at research into oat rust. A couple of texts. Uh, Halls Track Road, Pelvarada is suggested as one of the bad roads in Tasmania, which needs upgrading. Thank you for that text. Uh, Highlands Road from Melton Mowbray to Bothwell. Be a good start. It's narrow, windy, rough surface. Lots of private vehicles and also heavy vehicles. That's from Jamie. Thank you for that, Jamie. 0438922. 936, Mal says, a rural road I hate and needs upgrading. Tasman Highway, of course. Good on you, Mal. Thanks for that. 0438 936. Well, as we know, Tasmania has a tradition of producing wood-chopping champions like the great David Foster and also Amanda Beams, who has claimed no less than five world titles and three Australian titles so far. Madeleine Rojan dropped into her farm at Exeter to have a chat. This is a this is one I use in steel, which is the timber sports, and that we cut softwood, so it's poplar and that we cut. So you've got to have a I like a nice big axe chisel. That's a chisel grind. Gosh, but yeah, you got a banana. You notice how that's that's what we call a chisel grind. For me, I've yeah, I'm, I've I've got quite a competitive nature. I've I've got a competitive nature, and I f- yeah, I feel like that that's something that's probably a little bit outside the normal of what other people would do. And um, yeah, I just thought I could, I could do that. Yeah, I could do that. So um, you've got to be fairly strong but also have pretty good timing and and technique. And we seem to click pretty much straight away. And, yeah, and then down the track a bit came the wood chopping with the introduction of um, a women's team at Sydney Show. So once I seen a couple of girls wood chopping there, that was also for me to to myself, yeah, I, I can do that, I can do that. So, And Dale's been very supportive all the way through if I've wanted to do something he's just helped me yeah Yeah. and and as a woman did you think did you find it harder to get into the sport not really no because with every wood chopper there's generally a a female there somewhere and um yeah generally we're all that yeah we were outside the arena with the kids and, and everything supporting hubby and boyfriend's but then when um, the opportunity arose to have a go, the, the boys were more than welcoming of allowing us into the arena and, and helping us as well. Is it traditionally a female sport or has it been quite male-dominated or still is? Yeah, I, I think male-dominated only because of um, like our, our heritage of falling trees with axes and crosscut saws. That's the way it was done back in those days but I've seen footage of 
females of, of ladies in the wartime where they were needed to go and do those jobs because the guys weren't about. They were off at, uh, in war. So I don't think it's... It's certainly not uncommon. You started when you were 16. How long after did you win um, the championship, your first championship? Oh, you're testing me now. We've won a few. We have won a few, but I think cracking the first one, that was the hardest. We were soaring against uh, the David Foster, Kathy Munday, and, and David and Janelle, and and we, we had trouble cracking them, yeah, for a long time. But then I think... Probably early, oh, might have been late 90, 98, 99 or something. We actually did win uh, a Tasmanian Jack and Jill championship. And, yeah, we've been pretty lucky to to be on the podium for a lot lot more of those events since then. But, yeah, it was probably the hardest part was actually trying to win the first one. Um, And what's coming up for you in terms of competing? Um, at the moment, I'm training very hard for still the Australian Women's Championship, which is in March in Adelaide, going over there to, to try and defend the title that I won last year. So that's that's pretty high on the priority list at the moment. Then in April, we've got the Sydney Royal Easter Show. Uh, you've been competing for quite a few years now. Have you changed any of your training styles um, in the lead-up to the upcoming competition yeah training back in the day used to be with with Nick Shearer as our personal trainer and and we'd be training really hard two or three times a week and um yeah Nick's just had his knee operated on so he's a little bit out of action at the moment but um as we're getting older I'm trying to do as much as I can for myself and with everything that I've learnt from Nick He's, he's still in my head telling me, yeah, I've got to push myself harder and, and do certain things. But at the same time, I've, I've got to listen to my body because I'm, I'm almost 52 years of age and it's getting harder, not easier. <laughs> we were talking about it before, but you said your kids started when started woodchopping when they were about five, which I can't believe. How, how old do people usually yeah, compete? Until, yeah, you've got kids at at that age of yeah, our kids four and five when they were chopping, and um, and now generally around twelve years of age they can step into the arena, um, but we've got guys eighty three, eighty four, eighty five still competing in Tasmania, which I think's just amazing. Terry Hodgetts just blows me away when he just stands up there and cuts his log. He's amazing. Yeah, do you see yourself competing until then? 85, maybe older, 90? <laughs> I don't think so, no. <laughs> yeah, no, not the way this body's feeling. Um, oh, look, I, I want to compete for as long as I can and and contribute, as m- just give back as much that I can to whoever wants to start learning and those sort of things, but that's all something that we're, we're working on, yeah. yeah. Um, sounds like you had quite an influential coach back in the day. Was there a piece of advice that stuck with you? Yeah, there's been a few pieces of advice that have stuck with me. Um, I, I never forget, I saw with Bill Ude one day at Chudley Show and he said, geez, you're nervous. And I was shaking at the other end of the saw because Dale was actually away. And, um, and he told me that day just to 
take a couple of deep breaths and just settle yourself down. And, and that's always stayed with me, yeah, forever. There she is, chopping the wood. Woodchop champion Amanda Beams showing Madeleine Rojan how it's done. Still to come on the Country Hour, a couple of lovely flower stories for Valentine's Day. A check on the weather as well. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. A volunteer firefighter is missing in New Zealand after being swept away in a landslide caused by former tropical cyclone Gabrielle. Australian Olympic runner Peter Bolb says his provisional drug suspension has been lifted. In a statement posted on Twitter, Bolb says he's been informed his B sample did not confirm the result of an initial failed drug test. Bowl was suspended in January after his A sample tested positive for the banned substance EPO. The Disability Royal Commission's heard a lack of paid time to do paperwork makes it harder for support workers to report potential abuse of people with disabilities. Disability support worker Zelda Rydell told the hearing many workers have to choose between caring for clients and properly doing paperwork. And the CSIRO's RV investigator is returning to Australia from Antarctica earlier than planned due to a medical evacuation. The investigator was on a seven-week voyage led by Geoscience Australia when a researcher became unwell and needed medical care not available on board the vessel. More news at one. Okay, time now to check the latest on the weather with Luke Johnston from the Bureau. G'day, Luke. Hey, how are you going? I'm going well, mate. You're going to meet someone later on this week at the Dairy Conference. Do you want to say g'day to her now? Yeah, hi, Meg. How you doing? <laughs> hey, Luke. Good. How are you? Yeah, you're down in our neck of the woods rather yes. than being uh, trapped up in Burnie. Oh, oh, I don't know about trapped. I feel a bit trapped down here. There's traffic lights <laughs> everywhere. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, Meg Powell's going to do um, the big conference uh, starting Thursday, the Dairy Conference uh, from Rest Point Casino. should be huge. That's it, live. I think there's a record yeah. number of attendees coming. Yeah. It's going to be awesome weather for it too and there'll be a special appearance from Alex Melitzis from the Bureau of Meteorology on Thursday and then I will grace you with my presence live and in person on, uh, on Friday to do the country hour. How exciting. Yeah. One of our top three, top five weather people, I'd say. <laughs> top five. <laughs> in, a, in a team of five, I'm very thankful to make that list. <laughs> I, was going to, I was going to put you in the top ten, but there's only five of you, is there? Top ten. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A lot of people uh, transition away from operations. There's not many of us left these days. No. All right, we better do the forecast. You can say goodbye to Meg now. Yeah, bye, Meg. See you on Friday. See you then. Um, All right. Well, rainfall. Yeah, Weather-wise. Yeah, yeah, we had any we rain? Had a, yeah, a few, a few showers predominantly into the western far south, uh, mostly yesterday with some stream showers coming into the, the western far south uh, during the afternoon and evening. It only resulted in around two to five millimetres at most. It uh, remains sort of fine everywhere else. Since 9am, we've not had anything reported, uh, anything significant reported in rain gauges, although I suspect there's probably a couple of light showers down in the far southwest. Other than that, it's a fine day today, cloudy for the west and southwest today, and uh, partly cloudy or mostly sunny elsewhere in Tasmania. It's starting to warm up. We're expecting a top of 23 degrees in Hobart, only limited by the sea breeze. Inland temperatures are likely to be a bit warmer. Launceston expecting a top of 26 tomorrow. And uh, we're expecting pretty similar conditions uh, tomorrow, just warmer, and then warmer again on Thursday. There might be a little bit more high and middle-level cloud drifting over us at times, but relatively light winds for much of this week and relatively dry skies. Might get a light sprinkle from some mid-level cloud on Thursday afternoon and then potentially some afternoon thunderstorms popping up on Friday. But again, nothing too significant. We're likely to reach uh, temperatures into the low 30s inland on Thursday and Friday as well. So becoming hot 
before our cool change comes through on the weekend. Yeah, I call it ditto weather. Ditto weather. Yeah, yeah it comes comes a bit hard. Or it becomes a bit hard to distinguish between today, tomorrow, even Thursday. It's all subtle things. Like yeah. the difference between today and tomorrow is probably going to be more high level cloud around tomorrow. Just a thin veil coming yeah. over us. And, and then, is it going yeah, to be windy so, at all? Because we've got a problem with a fire up at Beulah, and we don't need yeah. the wind. No, no, no wind. It doesn't look like much in the way of wind until at least Saturday with that front coming through. It looks uh, like we're very much ridge-dominated weather all this week, so high-pressure ridge being the dominant feature, and then later in the week we get a weak trough moving over Tasmania. So that just changes the wind direction a little bit, but overall we're looking at light winds. Okay, now warnings. What have we got? Yeah, no, no warnings today no. or tomorrow. No warnings likely for Thursday or Friday, and we'll probably have a strong wind warning around on uh, Saturday uh, if if we uh, if we get there, if we survive the heat uh, throughout the week. Okay, so sounds good for the coastal waters. Yeah, no, very light winds today. So uh, westerly 10 to 20 knots in the far south, but variable to about 10 knots elsewhere with lots of afternoon sea breezes. Tomorrow, north to northeasterly in general, 10 to 20 knots, although northwesterly down the west coast and afternoon sea breezes are also expected. Today and tomorrow, even the swell's fairly benign and consistent. Uh, west to southwesterly swell coming onto the state in the range of two to three metres. Through Bass Strait, a westerly and a northeasterly, both below one metre and up the east coast, or down the east coast, I should say, for whatever reason, up or down the east coast, doesn't really matter. East to northeasterly, one to one and a half metres, and that's uh, consistent tomorrow as well. Doesn't matter if you're going up or down the east coast, it's beautiful. Mm, it is. It it's is. always a great place, just Good like the rest of Tasmania. Exactly. Good on you, Luke. Thanks, Tony. Luke Johnston from the Bureau. Always good to uh, chat with Luke, and he'll be live at the uh, Rest Point Casino. <laughs> We better keep him away from the casino, I think. Uh, at the Dairy Conference, the Dairy Conference this Thursday and Friday, Meg Powell and Fiona Breen will be there for the country hour, bringing you the latest on uh, what's happening in the dairy industry. Now, to our text line on Mount Rumney Road in the south is a shocker. Yes, I can uh, vouch for that. The bitumen edges are always breaking off, leaving rugged sides. There's no footpaths, although there's a lot of foot traffic. Sharp, narrow bends, although there's a lot of land where they could be straightened out and no thought given to many cyclists. That's from Trish. Good on you, Trish. Thank you for that. 0438 922 936, your favourite road that you love to hate. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, the question for you, does more rain necessarily mean more grain? That's the question being posed by farming systems agronomist Kenton Porker. After record rainfalls in many parts of the country, he's been speaking with growers about what can be learnt and applied to maximise yields if another La Nina heads our way. It's a really good time of year to think back on, on 2022 and we're at that time of the season when we're you know benchmarking our grain yields, just thinking, well, what did I achieve? But then... If we think about how wet it was in 2022, it's a really good time to think about, well, did we actually maximise our yield in 2022? Did we leave any yield behind in the paddock? And what, what can we learn from a season like that? If we get another wet season or another La Nina season, what can we learn and implement from a season like 2022? So when you asked the farmers in the room that question, what was their response? I think everyone thought it was their yields were probably slightly lower than what we expected from, from last season. And we're all sitting there wondering what might have been the cause for that. So you can 
sit down and start to think about it. Like, did we have enough nitrogen in our system, enough fertilizer? Um, did we get affected by frost? Did we get affected by heat? It was the timing of rain out? But I think one of the things we haven't really realized in Australia is when we get one of these seasons, what I'd call, let's call them the better seasons, or if we're in the high rainfall zone, often we're not limited by water. So we think that we're, you know, Australia's a, a nation of of dry and yes it is but actually in a season like last year when you go back and look at what happened it was actually you know we didn't actually have enough solar radiation in september to make use of all that water that we had in the paddock so actually we were more limited by um, solar radiation than we were water in 2022. Do you think that there is that misconception that those high rainfall years will just equal larger yields? That's exactly it, yeah. Like, I think there's this conception that we can just, you know, pour on water and we'll just keep taking yields up, but it's not as simple as that. So you've really got to think about, well, what can I do to make the most of my critical resource? So sure, water is a critical resource, but light is also a critical resource. So what can I do on my farm to make the most of capturing light? And it's one thing, like, you might say, oh, I can't make it sunnier or I can't make it brighter, I can't... I can't get any more light, but it's actually a lot of things that you can do just with simple crop management to make sure that you actually do um, capture and make the most of, of that, that resource. And what are some of those things? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So I've been fortunate enough to be involved in the GRDC Hyper Yielding Crops Program, which is um, led by Far Australia. And really they're looking at every agronomic lever, if you like, that can maximise yields in these environments where water's not limiting. So one of the key things that we've found is actually making sure you align your crop development so that the speed in which your crop progresses to flowering with the environment. So at a time when you're going to maximise the amount of light that you get from the environment. Now this happens during what we call the critical period, which is three to four weeks before flowering. And what we're trying to do is maximise light interception during the critical period, because that's what determines potential grain number. So we also want low temperatures during that phase. So if you have a cooler temperature during that period, you can lengthen the time that you form grain. And you also want bright, sunnier days during that period, which will build more grain during that phase from further synthesis. So that really comes back to making sure you have the right sowing date. So make, make sure you have the right variety at the right sowing date so that you align your critical period of all flowering time with your environment to capture most of those resources. So in essence, it's about trying to create the perfect recipe with water and light. Have we seen this done successfully outside of South Australia or, or Australia? Yes, certainly. So if you look at even the world record cereal yields, so they've just been broken. So now wheat yields in the United Kingdom are almost to 18 tonnes per hectare. But even in the hyper yielding crops project, we've achieved yields of up to 14, 16 tonnes per hectare in wheat. And you look at, you go back and look at what, what it was that was driving those yields. And it is this ratio between temperature and light in the critical period. But you have to have your crop ticking along. So you need green leaves in that period to make sure that they're capturing all that light. So you want to be capturing up to 95% of the light during that period. And if you think about what you can do on farm, so that disease management, you have a wet season like 2022 where disease was rife. If you didn't manage disease during that period, you look at some of the yield responses that were coming out of trials. So I just think of some simple examples that even in the Mallee, so untreated barley crops yielding three tonne, but then treated with three or four fungicides yielding seven tonnes. So a four tonne difference just from managing disease. And that's not really related to water. That That's related to keeping your green leaves. So keeping the leaves green in the upper canopy um, to capture light. So what were the real takeaways you heard from farmers after you finished speaking? 
I think we've sort of ignored this factor that the critical period is so important for yield. So when we looked back and thought about this timing of how we can maximise yield under non-water limiting um, conditions, I guess there are three main things that you sort of look at the data and think, well, that's that's really the key to achieving high yields. And the first one was growers can think about their crop development and align their crop development to environment. So that was, you know, you choose sowing date, you choose the right genetics to flower on time. The second one was to think about your farming system long term. So, you know, when we get the next 2022, when we get the next wet season, how can you have enough nitrogen in your system to achieve those yields? So ensure your farming system can support a higher nitrogen demand and the third one was really, you know, tactical agronomy or using management in season so that you can actually intercept um, that radiation in the critical period um, is really important. That's when it comes back to, you know, protecting your upper canopy for disease and making sure that you keep those those constraints out of your system. That's farming systems agronomist with the CSIRO, Kenton Porker, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris about uh, rain and grain. Whether you get more rain, do you get more grain? Well, flowers, that's what it's all about today, isn't it? Valentine's Day. We'll talk about that in just a moment. A couple of texts, though. Tina says, Rihanna Road, log trucks, school buses and milk tankers all dodging the giant potholes and broken edges. Uh, thank you for that, Tina. They're looking at the, our favourite roads that we love to hate in rural Tasmania. G'day, Tony. Ray Road funding. The roads are only going to get worse as we see what has been a very fair user pays road tax system which is our fuel excise being bypassed by the EV fleet who pay nothing for the opportunity to drive on our roads. Cheers, Wade. Thanks for that, Wade. 0438 922 936. As we know, it's Valentine's Day. Did you forget? Did you know that more than 50% of Australia's cut flowers come from overseas? But that's not the case for one florist in Devonport. Its new owners, Sophie Souris and Eric Nielsen, are actually flower farmers near Mount Roland, and made the choice to make sure 90% of their stock was from northwest growers. Meg Powell managed to catch them madly unpacking and arranging ahead of Valentine's Day. So this has all come from a local grower. This, he's up at like Gawler or the Astromeria. This guy, he does beautiful um, Belizianthus. It's a busy time of year for people in the flower business, like Sophia Suris and Eric Nielsen. So this is from another grower for different colours and forms. Look at those, they're just delicious. Yum, yum, yum. Almost four years ago, Sophia and Eric ran from the droughts and temperatures of the mid-north coast in New South Wales and found a farm in northwest Tasmania with a dream of growing flowers. 20-odd years I've been wanting to come to Tassie, so we did it. Yeah. So you started up a micro farm, you call it. What's that? Well, it's really a small-scale flower farm um, that's just open growing flowers. We haven't got lots of hoop houses and hot houses and things yet, but we'll gradually add things and expand on it. Um, but it's small scale, small patches, but intensive growing. So you can fit a large amount of plants into a smaller area for more production of flowers that you continually crop and they regenerate themselves. But recently, I mean, we're not standing on your farm at the moment. We're actually in a shop. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that, Sophia. Well, it kind of come about by accident, really. But um, when we had our first season of flowers last year, um, we had quite good production, particularly of dahlias and a few other 
uh, flowers that other people weren't growing locally and I was delivering those to uh, three florists in the local area. One in particular was taking probably 90% of the flowers each week and um, we were delivering one day and the owner mentioned that she needed to move on and uh, did we know somebody who might be interested to take it on? And it wasn't going to be us, but it's ended up being us. So it's been nearly a year, actually, this time last year when we were delivering all the flowers that it began. And it was April when we took it over. So you didn't didn't plan to own and, and run a florist? No, the plan was to be running the florist out of the farm gate building on the property that we have built and had things set up for. But it's sitting there waiting for us at the moment. Yeah, this place has actually taken off quite well. Uh, the idea was to, to grow flowers and uh, supply local f- florists with local product. Um, it just yeah, also means that we now supply ourselves with our own flowers as well. So It's been a bit of a change for Eric. My history's been bus driving uh, and came down here, got a job pretty much as soon as I stepped off the boat. So uh, very, very lucky that way. Sophie's always been into flowers, the whole family's keen gardeners and, uh, yeah, very talented. So I'll just try and help where I can and do the building and maintenance and ground preparation and that sort of stuff. Do what you're told, basically. Pretty much, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a bit bossy. (laughs) So between you, you've got, you do your bus driving, um, construction, florist, farm. How do you fit all of this in? Uh, headlamp. Yeah, a few late nights. <laughs> <laughs> Lots um, of coffee. Yeah, it's a juggle. Uh, the farm obviously is not getting the full attention it needs while we're running this full time because you can't, it's a full time job on its own and so is this. Um, so some things are looking after themselves and some things will be replanted and start again. Um, probably after winter, come spring. Um, there might be a bit of a change happening here soon without elaborating too much on that yet um, so that I can focus on managing the flower farm permanently. Watch this space, yep. Now it's, um, it's the lead up to Valentine's Day at the moment. It's only a few days away. What's it like here? Yeah, the crazy's picking up. Um, so probably be camped here all weekend prepping and... Yeah, doing bouquets and arrangements and all that good stuff, making up lovely gift hampers and all the chockies and all the goodies. Everyone's asking for red roses, of course. Yeah, that, uh, lovely pastels. According to the Australian Flower Traders Association, more than 50% of Australia's cut flower market comes from overseas. But that's not the case at Sophia's Florist here in Devonport. Well, we are 90% local grown in the west uh, northwest area in Tasmania so I uh, particularly have sourced local growers um, so that I get fresh flowers from the field I can have my flowers delivered on every day of the week and I can even pick up on Saturdays Uh, but we have fresh stuff coming into the shop each day of the week Um, and we're really blessed with how many local growers there are in our area. That's really unusual for most florists. Is that steady throughout the year? Are there downsides to only getting local blooms? Um, Most of what I'm getting is pretty much across the year. There might be a lapse in a certain variety for a little while but then they might have a you know another crop that they have in that gap for example. So um, 
but yeah, each of my growers I get something from continuously. Yeah. And how important is it to you to be sourcing your stuff locally? Uh, it's exactly what I want to focus on. That's why we're growing as well, so we can provide fresh flowers that are locally grown. They're not imported. They're not sprayed. They haven't travelled for miles. They haven't been stored for you know a couple of weeks or who knows how long. They're not covered in chemicals. Um, and they're just, yeah, from paddock to vase, basically, is, you know, what our concept is. And, you know, it's hard yards too, so we want to support our other local growers here. Uh, I think in the last couple of years, there has been a lot more focus and, and people are becoming a bit more aware, you know, like their food miles, they're becoming a little bit more conscious maybe of their flower miles. And, you know, I drum that into people <laughs> every day, don't I? <laughs> Um, and most people have no idea and don't realise how many good growers we've got here in our area as well. And they're often pleasantly surprised, you know, with our flowers. They're often commenting on all the beautiful flowers and the quality and the freshness. And I'll say, well, they're from, you know, here in our backyard. And people don't expect that really. Mm. Yeah, so it's good to promote the growers. The dream was to start a flower farm out at West Kentish, uh, and that's well on its way. Uh, it has taken a hit since we've taken on the shop, but the aim is to get back into that more on a full-time basis. Uh, but the idea is also to promote and support local growers and, and the local market because, like Sophie said, we've just got such an amazing you know, area and such good produce. It's, it's just nice to be able to support it and promote it. Eric Nelson and Sophie Suris talking to Meg Powell about their florist shop and their farm business growing flowers. Well, the good thing about Valentine's Day, it coincides with the time of year flower farms are in full bloom, so you're never short on flowers. In the northeast of Victoria, there's been a flush of flowers during the pandemic. Chilton couple Sarah Heels and Tim Smith officially opened their pick-your-own-farm called Pepper's Run in December, and they spoke to Annie Brown. Yes, we're in uh, Pepper's Run, just about a K out of Chilton, just on the edge of the Chilton Mount Pilot National Park on the way to Howlong. About 15 acres, so a little hobby, hobby farm, as we would be described by the farmers, um, in a little run-down 1940s miners' cottage. And um, we've been here for two and a half years. Yeah, about two and a half years. Pepper's Run, tell us a bit about what this farm or who this farm is named after. Yeah, so the farm is named after Peppa, our little cattle dog. Um, so we uh, adopted her through Dunroman Pet Rescue. I think two, about two weeks after we moved in here, <laughs> Tim said, yeah, we can get a dog. And I said, okay, well, I found one. We're picking her up on Saturday. Yeah, so Peppa has just been a real sort of joy and light in our lives ever since we got her. All right, well, take me back to the beginning. How did Pepper's Run begin? I was working in a desk job that I was feeling really unfulfilling and during COVID it was particularly isolating, working remotely at home on the computer all day, every day. Um, and I was thinking I wanted to do something that was outdoors, something that would connect me with people um, in the community and sort of the area more generally and yeah we had a, a little patch of flowers that was growing near our veggie garden and I got into the habit of taking people bunches of flowers whether it was friends or family or um, you know even into my Pilates studio in Albury um, and yeah just sort of noticing how much joy it gave people when they would get a bunch of flowers and um, how much people like to chat over flowers you know whether it's memories or things that their mum grew or their grandma grew and yeah I just thought well why not 
do this on a larger scale. So uh, we grow something like 28 varieties, a lot of sunflowers, dahlias, zinnias, cosmos, um, all the really happy summery flowers that just love the heat um, that go really well in this region. How did you go from transitioning it though from a hobby into yeah, a commercial farm like this? Yeah, um, so I did the, I took the NICE course, which is like the government new enterprise incentive scheme course. So they, they give you funding for three months to do um, a cert three, I think, in, in micro business management. Um, and then if you, you submit a business plan at the end of the course, and then if you're approved, um, you go on to nine months of funding. So that really helped to kind of get us through the, the winter and the difficult period before we could actually start planting and selling pl- uh, flowers. Do you sell to florists or anything like that yet? No, not selling to florists at this point. We're really focusing on the pick your own and um, working on developing that so that it's um, you know, good for locals and tourists and anyone who wants to come. And I guess what kind of people come to the farm? We've had a lot of young families, um, lots of mums bringing their, their sort of under school age kids, couples coming for a little bit of a date night and grandparents bringing grand, grandchildren as well. It's been really big with the kids, yeah. What would be some of your tips or advice that you'd give to budding flower growers who might want to get into flower farming? Um, get on top of your weeds. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good weed management system in place. Go into it with a plan. Start small. Start smaller than you think. And small in terms of the amount of space you're growing on and small in terms of the amount of variety. I think if we had our time again, we would probably have less variety and um, maybe not less space, but there was probably times when the amount of space that we were trying to farm, which is tiny, was still a little bit overwhelming, um, especially through the wet periods, especially through, you know, the first flush of weeds coming through. Uh, Not not only ask for help, but accept help. We were kind of doing it solo and we still are doing it solo, but we definitely lean on help of um, other people locally who do it. We borrowed the rotary hoe from Bernie at Mamaji Basin Produce. And if you didn't ask for that help and wanted to buy it yourself, there's 15 grand. So, you know, start small, ask for help, ask to borrow equipment because, yeah, it's, it's going to help you in the long run. And build those relationships is going to help you in the long run too. It's very romantic out here. What if you get some proposals on Valentine's Day? Have you thought about this? Yes, I actually have. I'm not even going to lie. Because we had a couple out here um, the other night and they had this beautiful picnic set up and, um, you know, the sun was setting, the light was so beautiful and I thought, oh my gosh, what if they proposed? Wouldn't that be great? So I'm, I'm definitely on hand. I can hold the camera. We can do like a hidden surprise one. I'm so keen. Oh yeah. I'm all about it. Yes. 100% on board so if you're if you're looking to propose to your partner this valentine's day please come we will do everything and have power to make it happen <laughs> yeah. i wonder how many proposals they'll get sarah heels and tim smith from pepper's run flower farm in chilton victoria speaking there to annie brown for valentine's day pick your own flowers and pick your own partner and then propose that's the go isn't it uh, don't forget if you do go online abc rule you'll see a fabulous story done by larissa smith and meg powell Uh, about flowers and Valentine's Day, some great pics of some beautiful flowers. ABC Rural Online. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.